We are together again. We had such a great last episode. Sam Devine was monstrous. I want to thank her for coming on True House Stories. And this is what makes this show one of the most watched, most educational, and stoic and historic. We've been able to get the truth from many of our peers. And so much has been, we've we just discovered so much because of this show. Thank the universe, God. I don't want to thank COVID for making me do this, but I have to say, thanks to COVID, as bad as COVID was, we actually did something really amazing out of it. This is what came out of it. And coming soon, we'll be on three years. Could you imagine we three years old already? Some talk of some great things coming up, and hopefully through the hope, the hopes and prayers of all of you helping me to get through this, it's been one of those moments. First, I want to give a special thanks to Faith. That's Terry Farley, as A.K. Terry Farley, Terry Brown, Junior Boy's own, Defected Crew, that's Wes Saunders, Simon Dawson, all the staff at Defected for putting together this magazine this month. And wonderful that we were able to get two great articles talking about the 1990s journey into sound. And of course, myself, as I always say, everyone has a beginning. Get your copy and remember the price. It's a very expensive price. It's for free. You heard me say it, free. Welcome to True House Stories, and good evening around the world, and good afternoon, or good morning, wherever you are. Today, I dig deep into the treasure tro trove of the 80s. And I say the 80s because everybody has, I always say, a beginning. And this brother has a, a, a beginning that is a force to be reckoned with. Working alongside Norman Jay at one time at High on Hope as a resident DJ to open up a record shop in London at a time when things were cutting edge and house music was starting to, as we should say, take its grips of the UK and London being the London town as it is. I must give this man his due right. You know, back in 84, he was floating around. And doing his thing and starting to play. And he even got to play with Soul to Soul's party. Jazzy B, which is an honor. So, and along the way, he left us with some massive hit records in house music. Those that remember that South Soul Nugget record. That's another big one. But plus, he's also remixed, produced, written, worked alongside... And just done such, such, such wonderful things to our business. And he just was telling me that he was in New York last couple of weeks. And it's funny. And I always say this, as I saw the posting with another friend of ours that we know, Benji Candelari, that was supposed to do this show, left me hanging. We're going to get him. <laughs> so 25 or 30 years can go by and not see someone. And within five minutes, that long span doesn't exist any longer. Because one thing brings us all together. It's that 4-4 beat 
and dance music. I'd like to welcome to the show of True House Stories and the family, Mr. Ricky Morrison. Hello, hello. Ricky Morrison. <laughs> welcome to the show, my brother, and thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you, all you lovely people out there. Big up, Mr. Lenny Fontana, for doing this over the past few years. My goodness gracious, he's found some people and he's found some glorious nuggets of information and stories. And we're Great. still going to keep it going. We're not going to stop. We're going to, we're going to, we found that one thing word is prevalent in this show true. The yeah. word true. We get the story from the person. It's the most important part to what makes this show fundamentally yeah. right. You're absolutely right. Work. And it's documented. That's the main thing as well. You forever and ever. It's not going to go out of print or anything like that. It's there, there forever and ever. That's fantastic. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, Ricky, you were in New York, huh? Before we get to the thing, how, how did that feel trans coming back over this way, the Transatlantic Express? It's changed a lot since the last time I was there. I went, last time I was there was probably around, probably the early 2000s. A lot of uh, smell of funny cigarettes in New York as well. The, <laughs> my goodness. I was standing outside, um, uh, what's it called? Penn, 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 what's it called? The Penn Street, Penn, Penn Station? Penn Station. Yeah. I took the train, I took the LLR, LLR, whatever it is, the LLR train from um, JFK through Queens. Okay. Got to, got to there, walked outside, all the yellow taxis, and I'm going, what's that smell? Oh my God. I was getting you know high. We've been hearing I was, high on, I was getting high on the fumes. Yeah. So uh, that was quite cool. <laughs> Yeah, we I went know to that smell, brother. We yeah. know that smell. Oh my god, it's the crazy. It's crazy that it actually became legal here. Yeah, that's exactly that's what I mean. You know, it's like everyone was just running around doing their thing. I thought, wow, okay. Because okay. back in the day, everybody would be hiding behind, like that's right. Like going now, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like wow. Okay, I tell you, it's funny how things change. Yeah, yeah, very funny. Yeah. But it's, it's still a great city, great city, huge. Didn't realize how big it was. You forgot. I forgot. I mean, a block is like, you know, oh, I was just two blocks down the road. It's like, <laughs> yes, it's quite a big place, big, big place. But again, you know, of course, we want to you know, remind everyone that you're still here, better yeah. than ever, and have not aged. It's incredible. Ah. <laughs> I mean, Thank yes, we've all gotten older, but man, it's like, yo, man, they say it, and I'm going to be clear on it. They say, <laughs> don't crack. And it's <laughs> true. This is so true. The man looks the same. Oh, like, I bet oh, wow. What happens? It's like, but I, I don't know. I've no idea. Good Italian wife, I think, as well. So that's good. Beating your hiney, banging it. Get, get, get going. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, everybody would like to know, of course, you know, I, I asked this one question to everyone, and it's the most important question, and we'll let you fire away because there'll be a lot for you to tell us because I know you're a plethora of a tremendous amount of information. How does music find you or you find in music as a young kid? Because this journey takes, it starts from somewhere. Everyone has that beginning. Yeah, Share with us that beginning. I think it started from 
I think it started from primary school when I was like about, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. You know, I mean, it was just one of those things. I was, I was, I was, my dad and my mum used to buy a lot of music, but of reggae music and two tone kind of stuff on Decca records back in the day. I think it just started from there, but also because I used to um, play the clarinet classically and I got to like grade six playing the clarinet. Um, my music teacher said I had a per I can sing a perfect A, which was quite nice. So I was just very naturally talented in, in terms of the music and it just kind of drew me towards, you know, listening to like really lovely songs. Like, and I was always listening to the radio, Radio One, all the Mike Reeds and... I remember on Saturday listening to a guy called um, Robbie Vincent. He used to play a lot of jazz funk kind of stuff. Um, Greg Edwards used to listen to a lot, who has a great show on My Soul, which me and Brandon are part of on a Friday. He used to do a, soul, a show called Soul Spectrum. And uh, we used to listen, I used to listen to those. He used to pause the tape, play the record, uh, listen to the, the um, record the records pause another record and when we used to go out clubbing in the car we used to try and uh, we used to play those tapes that we recorded and just stemmed from there really and then we i found a record shop uh oh god i'm keep jump when i like i keep jumping because i keep remembering things in my head i remember going to my first shop was bluebird records and um it was in church street in uh, paddington london also there was groove records in greek street soho but Category, uh, um, Bluebird Records was the first record shop I went to, and I met a guy called Abby Shah, who is very instrumental in my journey, my where I am right now, because he's the one that really paved the way for me to immerse myself in all styles of music, you know. Uh, but I think I guess I, I, I music found me in terms of like you know listening to radio shows, um, going to clubs a lot, listening to people DJs in clubs and stuff like that, and then coming back and then because I was a computer engineer at the time, I had more money than cents, so all my wages was going on buying records. Sometimes I've still got records now that I bought back then just to buy and sake that's still sealed, you know, because, you know, you go down that road as a record collector. When you buy a record, you look at the credits and you say, oh, who produced that record? Oh, Nick Martinelli produced that record. And well, what else he's done? And you go, oh, who engineered that record? Oh, it's uh, Steve Pesco produced that. Oh, oh, who engineered? Who did the mastering? Oh, it's Herb Powers. Anything that you saw that had those, those names on, you just buy blind because you knew it had some kind of quality to it, you know? So, um, <laughs> Pumping powers, yeah, pump powers, Frankford Wayne. Yeah, we made sure that me and Fred made sure he he mastered our um our one of our records uh, on strictly strictly rhythm. You know, also who engineered it? You know, who engineered the record? Because is there's a certain sound that I I mean, well, all I like is very American, very dense, very um warm kind of sound and we me and fran found out all the all the outboard gear that was used to create that sound you know so you know we we um i think it just i i you know i just became an avid collector of of, of music you know and uh, just immersed myself in all different styles jazz funk soul rock punk 
New Wave. I remember buying Elvis Costello, Pump It Up, because I loved it. Yoko Ono, Walking on Thin Ice. I remember buying that before. I didn't even know it was being played at the garage and, and, and the loft and stuff like that, you know. Um, the Clash. All those kind of stuff, you know, Iggy Pop used to buy all that kind of stuff. But um, I think I've moved towards the, the soul, the, the more the the soul and funk e- area because um, of the shows that I was listening to at the time, uh, Capital, um, BBC One. Uh, what else was there? Ray, um, Ray was it? Um, oh gosh, LWR. There was Kiss, obviously, back in the day. There was, um, what's that radio? I'm from the station that was, um, Robbie Vincent was on. The London, London state, nationwide station. But, uh, yeah. I was going to say Radio Luxembourg, but that's not a lot. It must have been called Radio London. Was it called Radio London? I can't remember. I can't remember. Somebody out there in the audience... Help brother Ricky to bring him back to that. Let's let's see who somebody will come up with the answer. I know someone's gonna write it. <laughs> By the way, Les Sharma is in the house. He's telling he says, Oh, man. Les, yeah, he engineered a few of our records back in the day at PWL because yes, uh man. good guy. I remember yeah. him very well. Good great engineer. Yeah. She could never do enough. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, PWL, that was a great time. But that's further down the road. So during that time, you're working as a computer engineer specialist and you're doing record collecting. I guess right. this, this DJing thing on the radio is becoming something more prevalent. No, what happened was, we was I was buying music and I had a collection of friends who have the same interest as, as myself. And we grew up together going to all these clubs from Wednesday to like, like Monday, actually. All week we were going to these clubs. and. Um, we were immersing ourselves in, in more of the soul, funk, jazz, hip-hop kind of sound, you know. And it just got to a point where we thought, you know what? We're going to these clubs and some of the DJs are playing some of the records that we, that we buy, but they're not, they're not, they haven't got the records that we've got. So we thought, well, let's try and do a sound system together. So we created a sound system called the System Inc. And we built our own speakers. We had like a makeshift console and with Joe, I've got to say, big up Joe Bonds, Delroy Yard, Huey Foster, Richard Smart, Asian Timothy, Lance Pedler. Those are like the core people that was that used to go out together on a Saturday, uh, well, from Wednesday to Saturday. And each night had a different theme. Like Friday, we'd go to like Royalty, a place called Royalty in Southgate. We had a DJ called Froggy playing there that, was, that used to go to the garage. Used to play on a Friday. There was Sean French on a Saturday. There was, um, oh my goodness. I'm trying to remember all the names now. Oh my God. But anyway, there was, um, we used to immerse ourselves in that, that kind of music. But because they weren't playing the records, some of the records that we weren't, that we had, we thought we'd make our own sound system. So basically, Joe built the speakers and built the console. And then what we do is that we'd, um, a friend of ours was an estate agent and he used to find, um, he used to have all these, un- these houses, which, which were empty. So what we used to do is basically, um, get the keys from the estate agent, put the speakers into the, into the, into the house. 
I mean, there's a, there's a place called Pontoprint, which used to go and print some flyers and dish them out to people in the streets and stuff like that, and then have a party on a Saturday. Sometimes we had a party of uh, a, 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 a good friend of ours in his house. We had a party in his house where we just had the top floor, and the top, we had Fran upstairs, who Fran, my, my ex-business partner at MNS, he had a sound system called One Touch. He had a system upstairs, and we had a system downstairs, and we'd be competing against each other. You know, it was, it was a great. But we had one party where we did a party at the Victorian Albert Museum in the in the in the penthouse suite because uh, I think that one of our friends' dad was a secu security guard, so um, we'd have to ferry the people from the station through the museum up into the penthouse suite to have the party, which you can never. Which you could never do now. I mean, we were so innocent back then. I mean, it was so, it was just um, great times, great times. I'm remembering everything now. I mean, you know, carrying the records in milk crates and each of us had a designated genre of music where uh, Joe would be more of a two-step, like a rare, rare groove kind of thing. Delroy would be the reggae section. Hugh would be the rap and hip hop. And I'd be more of like a disco, soul and funk and stuff yeah it's great great, so time. great time did froggy sent set the tone on the sound system building thing or was yeah he, he he was the mate uh, everyone used to go to see him because of the sound system i think he had something like a mat he built his own console uh as a mat amp i remember it was a mat amp like a um, huge like a tardis type console but he had these fucking excuse me he had these these sound system at royalty was ridiculous. I mean, it was, you'd be on the balcony and uh, the system would just wash right through the club. It's not like just in a certain area, go right, right down to the end with no delay, nothing. It was just incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And he used to mix back in the day two guys that really impressed me with three guys actually really impressive with their mixing where they're mixing like funk and soul but really blending not 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 like tracking but more just easing the record in just at the right time just to keep it moving that was froggy colin hud and paul anderson those guys there they would just be they really inspired me to try and create a a, a, temp, a texture just a rolling texture, not like, oh, here comes the mix, it's coming in, it's just like, just at the right, and Kenny Carpenter used to do that, as, does that as well, just gets it in, just at the right time, and just goes. Phew. Yeah, it so, takes you on a journey, it's like, well, it just, yeah, it just you know, happened, just happened like this. Back in the day, you couldn't mix those kind of records, obviously, because there were live drums, unless you had, like, the 80s synthesized kind of um, pop records you can do that all day long but all the disco records and the funk records they were live drums so you had to get them at the right at the right place and froggy used to do that really really well he used to mix disco really well really really well ricky one thing i said i remember when i first met trouble in the early 90s i remember asking him i said trouble did you ever come to new york because you play like an american and he started laughing yeah, you, no, you, you gotta understand, Lenny, that back in the day, we those record shops that we went to, I mentioned before, Groove Records and and uh Bluebird with Abbey, they were buying American imports like it was rice. I mean, every you know, I, I can see my record collection, everyone had that little S import on the on the um 
on the on the sleeve. You know, we were buying everything American, everything. And sometimes some labels were sending them to the UK because they weren't sending them in America. So they were quite lucky to be getting those records. And because, as again, I was an engineer, I was just buying everything. In fact, Abby told me to stop once to stop buying records. I was just buying, I was just buying it blind and can't give it to him, you, you know. And I was buying like, I used to buy three copies of a record, two to mess around with, and one just to have sealed in um, in in my collection. You know, it's it's incredible, incredible. You know, but uh, we we really immersed ourselves in the American sound because of our heritage. You know, being West Indian or Afro Caribbean, you know, we kind of leaned towards that more soulful kind of uh, sound. So. You know, we went into like the the the, the hits that like, the, the records that are out in the eighties in England. We're more American based, you know. In fact, we probably knew more about the re- the, the 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 landscape of American sound than the Americans because we'd be getting things from everywhere. You know, from Detroit, from Chicago, L.A., New York, Florida. We'd be getting all those. They'd be getting all those records from that. Thing. Not just the major labels, but all the independent labels. You know, they were flinging, sending the records over. So, you know, London was kind of like being the centre of the of of music in general from the Americans from like the eighties and until like the probably till the to the late nineties. You know, we're getting everything. Well, it's true because I remember when I first met you, you knew everything and. What we were all doing, everything. Yeah, yeah. You had yeah. music. You yeah. had you had the knowledge. I remember I was and I came back to America saying, "We can't get shot." In <laughs> you can't. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sad, but it's true. But when yeah. I got to England, you knew what my first records were. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was, every, it was just like it was. Inc- I was so. Gobsmacked over it. I, I do. I do remember we because we, we knew everything. Because we uh, uh, the English, because we knew everything. When the Americans DJs first came over, when I'm going to say I'm going to say it like it is. When they first came over, I got to admit we were, all of us were going like, and what's going on? Because I think the Americans had the mentality where, oh, we, they don't know about this. They don't know about that. So they were playing a lot of records, which you're thinking, oh, come on, man. You know, we know these records. So step by step, after year, year by year, a lot of the big players realized that. And they said, okay, if you're if you going to go there, let's go there. And then gradually they really started to play how would they how they play in America, whereas just not like coming over to England and playing all this fluffy stuff because, you know, we weren't having it because we knew. Oh, I remember. We knew, those rec- we knew the DJs had those records and we wanted them to play those records. I think that's a general consensus as a DJ. When you go to another country, you assume that they don't know, but they do know. They Otherwise, they wouldn't book, have booked you. Do you no, you're right. I mean? no, no, you're right. No, no, I can't. They I wouldn't can't. have booked you. So let's go back a little bit. You know, he mentioned that he was coming to New York in the 80s. So before we get into that 90s era, I want mm. I want him to give you his heritage of how he <laughs> understands the whole rhythm of the street from yeah. across the pond and coming yeah. to the United States. He, he told me about a friend of his that was living here. So I'm going to let you. Yeah, a friend of mine. His name is Gary Grant. I saw him when I was out there a few weeks ago. Gary Gary Grant. I haven't seen it. I didn't see him for like 20, 30 years. Anyway, around the 80s, when we were all clubbing, he announced that he was moving to New York. And we were almost crying because he was a proper 
wingman, you know. Um, actually, he, <laughs> he used to be the, the ladies' man. We used to go to the clubs and all the girls used to swoon around him when we'd get the scraps, you know, kind of thing. You he's know, after, a magnet, mate. He yeah, he's a magnet. So he, and we were gutted that he was leaving. So anyway, he moved to New York. And, um, but we kept in touch, obviously. Do you remember what year that was about? Do you remember what year that was? This was 80, this must have been about 80, this was just after Electric Borum kind of era, 83, 84, around that time. So he moved to New York, got himself settled, lived in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And, um, I had cousins in Queens and in Brook and in Flatbush. So I'd go, I was going over there and meeting him. And then he called me one day and he goes, Rick, I need to take you to this club. I goes, what clubs? He goes, oh, this club called the garage. Cause he used to work for Alvin Ailey and Alvin Ailey was a very, uh, one of the most prolific dance companies back in the day. And uh, a lot of the people that he would be dancing with would go to this place called the garage. So they invited him to go to the garage and you know, he, they were, he was, listening to music that we were actually listening to in, in uh, England. So he thought, oh, Rick, you know, we've got to go there. So he goes, um, it's a gay, but it's not gay on Fridays. I goes, okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, I had no problem at all. So I go to this club now, you know, obviously going up the ramp, you go into this little room, you see all these people with these bags. I'm thinking, what's going on here? You know, obviously it's a change what's of... What's the deal with the bag, right? Everybody's like, what is that? You know, I'm thinking, what in that, like a real dark blue light and they're all like stuffing around doing their thing you know trying to get themselves ready open this curtain go into this place i'm thinking what the this system was just rumbling like rolling everyone's just you know so hedonistic losing them everyone had their uh, in their own little moment on the dance floor no one not like now where everyone's like going Oh, I mean, you like know, this? You know, like this. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Everyone was just in their own little moment, their own little moment. It was just ridiculous. I mean, the system was incredible. And then I'm going, where's the booth? Where's the booth? I look up and there's this little slit up the top there and you just see Larry's head going like this, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God. And I went right down to the, the, the far corner so I couldn't be seen because everywhere I was going, people were, like, nudging me and looking at me and like, I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, what's going to happen here, you know? Because obviously, you know, it, it, it was a gay well, club, I, you know. I must say on a Friday night, beautiful women. Yeah, I mean, it, I wasn't I wasn't really concerned with that because I was trying to watch. <laughs> you you were going to get mauled. Because I was kind of shuffling around the back of the group, the club, like, to make sure my back's on the wall kind of thing, you know. But, uh, yeah, I went there a few times. I went on a pilgrimage there every year. I remember some of the moments there. I mean, they were very, very special times. I mean, i got to admit, when he was playing, Larry was playing, it, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I caught the later end of the garage, but it was very musically. It was fantastic. The music because of the sound system predominantly, you know, because of the sound system. But I, I, I've got to admit that the the blend, the blend was a little bit more to be desired, if that makes sense. You know, David DePino was on point. He was he was really really cool. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of nights. I mean, maybe I did go on a couple of bad nights, but there's one night um, Larry was really on fire, but he was just 
swashbuckling, making the sound go loud, then soft and everything like that. But it, it really... But the crowd made me go, this is what I want to be doing. You know, this is where I want to be. The, the music, I think this is where I want, I need to be going to because the, 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 it wasn't about mixing. It was about the selection. Do you understand? The transitions were wrong, but the records were right at the time where he, and he knew the crowd that he was um, playing to, you know, I remember uh, once when I heard, um, this was quite a while ago. I think he played, um, he played Jamie Principal, and uh, he had this Jamie, Jamie, that, you know, um, from nowhere. And then you hear dum dum. But the speed was really slow, not like the, the tempo of uh, it is. Because tempo is like one thirty, right? Yeah. All you hear is dum dum dum, dum 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 you Jamie, Jamie, you know, and then he'd mix into like, um, what was it, Thriller with the <laughs> Vincent, you know, and all that. Uh, it's, 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 it was technically, but sound system, he knew how to work the system. Same thing as when he went to, when he played at Ministry of Sound, the first night he played at Ministry of Sound. Same thing when he was playing like, um, and, and I remember him playing, um, oh, what was that track? He played um, I wasn't a, boy Jarvis, a Boy Jarvis track. Um, hold on, hold on. Oh, my God. Central Line. He played that. Fleetwood. Oh, Oh my God! So yellow label, I can see it now. He played that, but the bass, like with all of the drum, the the oh, I can't remember the drum patterns, the drum sounds back in the day. You know that sound that Boy Jarvis and Timmy sound. That I can't remember the drum machine, but anyway, he played that. I think that was the Elisis. That was that Elisis machine. Oh, I can't remember. It's a great. But, uh, any any of those records with a huge bass line and a huge sound effect was just like incredible, incredible. Best sounds I've ever seen. Best sounds I've ever, ever witnessed. The best. Zanzibar. Zanzibar is another one. That was, woof. That was, I went to the Zanzibar as well to hear Tony play on the Thorns. That was quite, in, that was quite cool. But he was more of a, this was like the later 80s. When I went to do all the um, the clubs in the, in, in the late 80s, all like Save the Robots with DJ Smash with the sand floor. I remember that. The floor was made of sand. <laughs> that was incredible. We're over an after-hours club. And um, what else? Mars. Went to Mars with the five floors. Yeah. Went to the world to hear uh, Frankie Knuckles play, the Palladium with the screens. So I was brought up more of, I was, going back to your question, I, I was always influenced by American music, you know, so it's really nice to have gone to the source and actually heard those records played in those environments, you know, and um, I was quite lucky actually to be able to have gone to that hallowed place and a lot of other places because I knew the people out there, you know, um, they got me into the clubs. Otherwise I'd be a, a deer in headlights, wouldn't I? Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, how could you not, I mean, you, you know, I always say this when you're in the middle of it at that time, you're not realizing this is going to end ever. Exactly. You're just living. You know? You're living day to day. It's, I can't explain it. You're not thinking, yeah. oh, this yeah, is going to be yeah. over soon, you know, yeah. or 
this era is going to end. Those clubs, like when we, we, me and Abby went to the Sound Factory, we'd see Junior Vasquez, and he played one of our records that was on our label, tracked by, um, on Catcher Groove Records, it was called, and they're tracked by Total Science. Um, and he played it because he heard us. He said he had, we're in the club and he played that record. And that was just like ridiculous hearing our own record in American, in the Sound Factory, not Sound oh, Factory, that sounds, Sound Factory. Yeah, that sounds ridiculous. And also, we went to see, um, we went to the tunnel. I remember that one, the tunnel. Uh, that was a great club, like a huge club where, you, and the, sub, the subways at the very, very end. You know, the train tracks. Yeah. Train tracks. That was incredible. That was, uh, oh, that club there. That's where I met Boy Jarvis there. Let me show everybody. Look. Yeah, there he is. The man himself. May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. But what a talent. Oh, my God. I've got to say that. I've got to say huge, humongous props to Abigail Adams. She is instrumental in my little captures of time over there, I went once me and Abby went there. It was just incredible. She invited us to the, the shop. She's a sweetheart. <laughs> She's a wonderful yeah. person, Abby. That shop was ridiculous. Isn't that funny, Ricky? Both Abbies that we know are what even Abby yes. partner. He was a doll. He's a sweetheart. And Abigail Adams. Abigail we? Adams was treated me and Abby like family, you know, went to the house, had food, took us to all the places, let us go to the back of the shop with all the cutouts and stuff. Oh, my God, it was ridiculous. I was uh, it's like a kid in a candy store. I'm on the, she's on the phone. I'm going, oh, it would be lovely to meet. Lovely to meet Boyd or Kevin. Yeah, she said, and ding, 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 ding. She's like, hey, Boyd, I've got some guys that want to meet you. I'm like, oh, my God. Wait, the boy Jarvis? Yeah, oh, my God. I'll never forget that. Took us out, met him in the, met in the tunnel, then went to his house. I remember being a table. I'm, me and Abby were sitting on a table in this apartment. I think it's his apartment. And me and him look at each other and we're looking across the, across the table and it's Boyd Jarvis. Like, all the rec... I mean, me and Abby used to be necessitant in buying all Boyd Jarvis stuff, all the system stuff, David Frank and McMurphy. That's why we called ourselves a system because we love that kind of funky, that's electronic synthesized sound. So we called ourselves a system. So we, you know... Um, I'm going off on a tangent here, but you know, it's all right. No, no, well, I'll keep we, you on the tracks. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, um, with the boy Jarvis, we just love that synthesized funky bass on the one, you know, and Boyd was the king of those bass lines and the, and the organ riffs and that. So we were buying everything, anything with his name on it, stimulation, legend, whip your hips, all kind of stuff. Tammy Lucas, obviously the music got me, you know, uh, he did a lot of stuff. He did the, the um, I had to, I had to run to New York to buy Running by Colonel Abraham's. Boy I was going to say that. The one-sided one. I paid $40 for that. I remember a shop on Broadway. It was near, uh, it was near um, Pop Shop. When I used to get the, all the Keith Haring stuff. There was a shop down there. I remember buying Log, Dancing to the Stars for 40 cents. And running for $40, a white label running. I got it somewhere. One sided and the other side is all, you know, messed up. 
I had to have that record. And now, obviously, you know, with Bob Boyd passing away, you can actually have access. If you go to his web, maybe his website's still alive, you can get all that stuff and buy it, you know. So, um, yeah. What a great talent. Yeah, great talent. So, wow. when did you decide to retire from the computer engineering? And oh, what happened was a bit of a, a sequence of events, to be fair. I was, a, really, I was doing really well in the computing job, really, really well. And I was com- commanding like about five or six engineers in that thing called an M25 area. So I used to look after all the hotels in, in like the Savoy and stuff like that because um, the company I was working for had the contracts for them. So we had to do like a four-hour response. So I was a young kid, had the company car, had the phone before anyone else had the phone because, you know, it was crazy back then. And I was doing so well that they wanted me to relocate to um, to Birmingham on Christmas Eve. So they said, Rick, we need you to go to Birmingham to do this call. And then when you go up there, you need to go and find a place because next year you're moving up there and you're going to make sure everything's tight in, in, in Birmingham. I went, no. I'm not doing that. It's Christmas Eve. You know, I'm not doing that. I'll, I'll do the call, but I'm not, I'm, you know, I'll go to Birmingham. I'm not going to be um, scouting around in the new year for a job. He goes, you either do that or you're sacked. I went, okay, sack me then. Sack me. So he sacked me Christmas Eve. Nice guy. Right. Went through all the tribunals, got all the money and all that stuff, you know, and, um, Around that time, 89, 90, because obviously I was working. We, uh, there's a, a little backstory to that because between like 86 and like 89, I was a Saturday boy at a place called um, Red Records. And we, there was three Saturday boys. Abby had, was working at the shop at the time. He, he was the manager of the shop. And the Saturday boys that used to work on a Saturday with Abby was myself, Seamus Haji, Trevor Nelson. Oh, Trevor went on. And Jeremy Newell. We were the Saturday boys there. And so we were, because of our knowledge of music, we were absolutely, we were absolutely um, killing it. People coming in their droves, buying records. I remember, and, and also because of Abby's contacts, we had a lot of the people who were performing in America, in, uh, in the UK coming out. We had the whole cutting records crew and there was a little guy called little Lou Vega hanging in, in the background coming through. There was Benji, there was Aldo Marin. There was, because there, remember that record, um, Wiggle It. Oh yeah. That was huge back then. And they came over to tour. Totally. You know, so they came in, they would come into the store and hang out anyway. We were, uh, we were, we, I used to be a Saturday boy there doing all the records, all when French Kiss came out, when all the huge, massive, and I was, me and Abby were more, back in the day, there was a competition in the 80s between Chicago and New York. Oh, yeah. We would call, I would, we, I would call it New York club music, which was right, which is all the Easy Street, Jump Street. Um, all those independent labels, Apexion, you know, Joe Church, all those kind of records. And then there was Chicago. We had like Diamond. You had like, um, oh my God. Um, Tracks. Underground. underground uh, what's it called? Underground House or something. Tracks. 
you know, all those. So oh, me and Frank, me and Abby were more akin to the New York style, and then it was Chicago stuff so was more acidic, more more energetic, you know. So um, I would be selling all those kind of records, and Abby would be selling those, and then Jeremy would be selling all the the bits in between. But that's how Jeremy got his knowledge of music. He just he was just an animal taking everything in, taking everything, and and Trevor was there doing his his thing. Seamus was there. Um, oh my god! Anyway, so that happened, and because of that, me and Abby being frustrated. And all, all Saturday boys making this guy so much money because people were coming in. Dave Lee used to come in with a box of records, Republic Records, Sailor Return, because that we were the only shop that was selling that kind of music. That we were able to get over, get the people to come in to buy those kind of those kind of music. You know, Phase Two, Reaching, Stardust. You know, all those kind of records. And early Republic used to come in with a box of records and and you know, Sailor Return. But because we had that 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 knowledge. And those people used to come into the store all the time to actually. Um, I think I have the picture from Republic. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, there you go. Yeah. Blaze is on Republic. That was Blaze, Kevin Hedge, and Josh. Man and and uh, Josh, yeah. No, what's the, Chris Herbert. Chris Herbert. Chris Herbert yeah. Yeah. Herbert. yeah. Great vocalist. Great, great vocalist. Before they got signed to Motown, this is way before they got signed to Motown. This is way before, Demi. way, way before. This is way like on Quark, when on Quark Records. I met Curtis Regardin. <laughs> yeah, I remember meeting him as well. What a guy. Great, great guy. Oh, my God, Curtis. That was a label, Quark Records. Oh, my God. And Freddie Stone mixing the records, these house records. Right? Yeah, Stardust. Stardust. Yeah, remember Blaze, If You Should Need a Friend. If You Should Need a Friend. Uh, can't Win for Losing. I remember a, a, a early Jamanda records. Um, wow, that label was fire. That was fire, that label. Um, wow. It's a Mystery, Phase 2. Oh, my God, the, that piano. Uh, reprise that was a great record anyway yeah so cut a long story short we were working at this stop this store making bad money the owner wasn't really interested i got like made usual. redundant like yeah usual. i got made redundant abby and us they were fired you huh they fired you from that shop oh no no the 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 computer shop oh okay the, got the, it the computers so they fired me and i got a whole bunch of money from that and that particular time, we were really quite frustrated with the with the demographic of the of the Red Record Store. So we thought, you know what, let's open up our own record store. So I got my money from the um, from the redundancy and Abby, and we all put it together, and we found a, a space in Dean Street, and we called it Catch a Groove, and we painted the walls. We we were and and at that time. Uh, black market was around and they were the only records when you used to go to a record shop back in the day you didn't have all the records on display you'd have them in the racks and then you'd go and find which one you wanted and then and then you'd have there'd be silence there'd be there'd be like the records would be chosen bosh do you want it yes no okay bosh it was like that back in the day you know you'd have to like you know wait wait for your turn but with Black Market, they changed the game by actually mixing the records right. into each other for people to buy the records. But we flipped it completely, and we made the whole day like a mega mix. 
So if someone were to hear a record, we'd go, it's in the pile, and we'd play it in the sequence where we thought the records would work. And that's how we would sell so many records, because me and Jeremy had it down where we'd play a certain break of record at a certain time, and it got to a point where the record, the place was so packed, like a meeting place, we were trying to, we need to get rid of some records, Jeremy, we need to get rid of like 15 of these records, you know. So we'd mix in this break, and then we're going, oh, 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 oh. So we go all on people's Like an auction phone, house, like an auction know? house would start. And Jeremy would go, and Jeremy came up with, I think it maybe Jeremy also come up, you need this, you need two of these records, so you can mix this with this and this. And we were selling like two or three copies of, of one record to one person. You know, but but I've got to say, the records that we were selling were real quality records that stand the test of time. We weren't no rubbish, you know. So um, anyway, yeah, we built the shop. Uh, because of our contacts, Abby knew a guy called David Drew, who was a really, really high-end guy that knew all people in the States and stuff, where we'd get all the cutouts from the States. He orchestrated a situation where we had to make a big grand opening of the shop. And uh, we got Guy to open the shop, the band Guy on Motown Records. They came in and signed autographs. I don't think they did a PA, though, but they were hanging out in the store. So that was immediately put us into the limelight. And from then on, we were just like, you know, controlling our own destiny. We were selling records that we liked. We got to a point, as you probably know, where we had a reputation of having records long before everyone else did. And that was because we would be getting the dats and the the scripts from the producers in America. What do you think of this, Rick? What do you think of this, Abby? Da, 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 da. I think we could sell a hundred of those. Okay, cool. Point in question, Kingsley, K4B. Remember K4B London? Right, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. K4B. He would send us the dats. All we'd right. have a listen to them. We'd go, yeah, we'd have a three of those. I remember getting the, the dats of all the Michael Watford stuff. You know, it's, it's incredible that that period. So yeah, going. So what was the qu the question? Was the, the what question. was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? No, you say, you yeah. stop me because every time I was talking, so I'm getting these memories. Good. The question was, how did the redundancy happen to you getting into? Yeah, so I used that money for redundancy to pay. So what did it cost you at that time for you all of you to put a record shop together roughly at that time? To I really can't remember. We were quite lucky to have found the premises. Um, we had we did get it. I'm, I'm sure Abby will correct me on this. We did get it for quite a good deal because we had the shop downstairs. We had a basement down. We had a shop on the street level. Then we, downstairs we had like the R&B section. Right, I remember that. Then we had David living the floor above. And then I had an apartment at the top the, the the floor above that and then we had someone else living above me so we got that whole building quite cheap uh not owning it uh renting it you know mm -hmm. and it was very unique is that uh, is in a place in dean street where it was quite uh, it was quite um quite a boutique kind of area you know it's near soho square it was off Oxford Street, so we used to get a lot of passing trade, and we'd have the we'd have the the, the doors open just playing music in the summer. It's like a bloody festival. You had cars outside, hang, people hanging out, and yeah, you know, it's really really cool. A fantastic shop, so many memories, and and because of the reputation of the shop and that, it just transcended into the artists and the producers having to come by and say hello, you know, like yourself. 
Shep Pettibone came into the store. Larry Levan came into the store. You know, Timmy Ridgesford came into the store, hanged out. Morales. Everybody. Sanchez, yeah. Everybody came. And we had this whiteboard. We had this whiteboard on when you walked into the office. And we made sure everybody signed the rep, the signed this whiteboard. If I had that whiteboard now, my God, I'd be with you in New York with, with our own studio. You know, you know, we did gold dust that 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 board. Oh, but yeah. yes, we were really lucky. Mariah Carey came into the store. Every and it's just madness. Terry Hunter for the first time came to the came into the store. I mean, it was an incredible, incredible feeling, and it was, it was I think, it was three years of absolute. Fantasticness, if that's the right word. It was just great, really great. A lot of records from that store. You helped make yeah. launch a lot of careers without even realizing it. You just, yeah. you just on the love of the music, you just play the records and because we loved me and Abby and Jeremy, we loved introducing people to records, to music, to parts of records. And we kind of changed the landscape a little where you know there were there were people that were coming in that were just lovely people that would just come in and buy lovely music. Girls, uh, you know, like um, uh, stockbrokers used to come in and just buy records. And then I find out a few years down the line that they're DJs. You know, there's a couple of cats that I remember that uh, I remember um, used to come in and buy and used to buy records and he used to buy lovely records. Then as he got into the culture of the category of culture, he go, I'll have two of those. And then when he really got into them, a couple of characters, I'll have three of those, two to mess around with, uh, one just to have in the, in the, in the collection as a sealed copy, you know, and some people would have them as art pieces, you know, like, you know, collectors, like, you know, I just want that record, the hard drive EP when that came out, you know the, the 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 hard drive deep inside. Yeah, it came out with the disco ball and the. And I the was very things. very I was very very lucky because I had the apartment upstairs. I had my own studio, and I remember um, every time the DJs would come in, they'd come and hang out upstairs. Like Kenny would be playing on my MPC, making up a beat, you know, and Louis would be playing some keys and stuff like that. And in fact, Tony, when Tony was resident at Ministry of Sound. He did the the master mix shows in my apartment, the Kiss FM master mix shows. He do that because I had the Yuri at the time. Benji got me a Yuri back in the day. Thank you very much, Benji. I still got it now over there. And uh, because the setup was similar to Tony's setup, Tony would come and do the shows in my apartment and then send the dats to um, to to New York. You know, but um, in my apartment. Um, I had, a, I had a studio set up there. So basically, um, I lost my train of thought there. What was I talking about? It was the... How everybody in in that in that catcher groove, how you had all, everything contained in, from the shop to people hanging out. Yeah. And Tony, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I saw that my apartment. Why did I like to mention my apartment? I'm trying to mention my apartment. Why that was quite significant. I can't remember now. Oh, yeah. Tony Huffy's doing the master mix. Well, right? Tony Huffy's doing the master mix, you know, and everyone hanging out and stuff like that, you know. Um, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Deep inside. So, hard drive came out. A year and a half before, Mr. Vega was upstairs in my apartment. And he gave me this dat. And this dat 
had hard drive deep inside. It had Voices of Freedom, and it had um, uh, Hot for You, and it had a really sparse version of India. I can't get no sleep. And at that time, obviously, you had no CDs. You had records. But I used to spend all my money, and I'm pretty sure other DJs back in the day used to spend all their money on acetates. That's right. And there was a shop, there was a place called Music House in Holloway. And I used to go there every week because I was quite lucky to get these debts. So I had Deep Inside for a year and a half before it came out. I used to hammer this record on a slate. I worn that about five or six slates. I used to beat this record up everywhere I played. And it got to the point where when we knew the record was coming out, we had about, I'm not lying, about 150 copies of that EP in the store. And because everyone knew the record was I played it, maybe some other DJs played it, it just was flying off the shelves. And people were actually buying a couple of copies and then buying one just for themselves, just to keep like I remember that that moment in time, you know, the deep inside, you know. So um yeah, it's a great, 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 um, great, great memories. My God, I'm remembering so many, so much stuff now. I'll probably have to tell you a few. This maybe need to do a part two of this. No, keep going. We love you. Keep going, Erica. Um, keep going. Yeah, hard drive. There was uh, Michael Watford holding on. Remember that one coming out? We had a hundred copies of that. We sold that out in a day. Um, I remember also going. I mean, a, a real true story. Um, this is very true. Uh, we knew a lady in Virgin Records in the States and she told us about this record because at that time, Daryl James and David Anthony, around like 90 or 92, 93, they were absolute fire. They were just knocking records out the ballpark. And this lady goes, she goes to Abby, oh, I've got this record um, and they've done a mix. We don't like it. But I'll send you some anyway. I goes, what is it? Oh, is this record shop called uh, Aftershock, Slave to the Vibe? You might oh, like yeah. it, you might not like it. So she sends over about 25 copies on import. Me, Jeremy and Abby lost our minds. It was just ridiculous. What is, why, is, why isn't this coming out? What's going on? We were the only shop to have that record. And we got some more rep. I mean, announced it that we we're having aftershock, becoming a shop on Saturday. We had queues going out the shop round the block to buy this import. And it got so popular that they, had, they were forced, Virgin was forced to put it out on a UK 12. And I can safely say, say we were responsible for breaking that record. Aftershock, save to the vibe. See that? So I tell people that that's the kind of power the DJ had. And the, the shop, shop. The shop. And the, yeah, the, the, it was just. I think the shop was our personality because we were always excited when a new record came in and we'd feed that to the people. And then, and then it just got to a point where everybody knew on Tuesdays and Saturdays there were new records and they were also going there to be educated and to, be sh and to have another beautiful piece of time to take home and listen to. Do you understand what I mean? They weren't buying blind. We were, we were kind of educated. Not, not in a bit, not in a bold kind of way. We were educating people with the records that we were playing, you know, and 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 they loved coming on Tuesday because they knew they'd get a fix. And Saturday, they knew they were. Oh my God, I can't wait to go to Category because I'm hearing a new record that you know Ricky or Jeremy Abbey's discovered, you know. And it was like that, you know. It wasn't like just the popular top ten. Not like now where you have like a reference. 
you have a top 10 reference and you buy from the top 10 or whatever, you know, obviously with the digital age, that's a completely different, that's another conversation, you know, with the digital. Yeah, we're not going to ask that question. We're not going down that road because that's just another conversation. Yeah, you can't, because if you entangle that into this, you know. Yeah, that'll just put oil in the water, wouldn't it, really? um, You're giving us the glorious golden moment. Yeah, those, those, yeah, those. Yeah, those beautiful captures of time. In the 90s, we were very, Cratty Groove, Black Market, Craft Records. Um, there was another one, Chockey's Tunes. There was a few records up in the north of London. They're really instrumental in pushing the 90s house sound. You know, um, it was really a beautiful, beautiful period. Beautiful I can't 119 BPM, 120 BPM. It was glorious, 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 glorious times. I mean, so, um, okay. Yeah. So I know Abby and went on his own and you guys, I know you left the shop because you took on a career. Yeah. I mean, basically what happened there. What, yeah. What? Unfortunately, you know, uh, the shop went through a couple of financial situations. Not going to lie. Just got to the point where we had to close the shop and move on. And um, Abby went into the distribution game. I think Jeremy was quite a, a, a lost soul at the time and just immersed himself in buying the, the whole salsa record collection. I remember him saying to me when I went when he started discovering records, he goes, "Rick, I'm going to buy every single record on salsa." And I think he probably has got every single record on salsa. You know. He lost his mind and went there. And I started, I was DJing quite a lot. Uh, but the DJing was great. But I really was getting into uh, making music. I started doing a couple of records on a label called um, Mighty, what was that? I can't remember now. The record label, and we called ourselves uh, Two Dope Productions, which was before Kenny Goat. I remember that, before he called himself Two Dope Productions. We had an argument about that back in the day. And then um, I was making records like we had like an M1 and an MPC, my first MPC 60. And um, we were kind of making records. So I think it was on, a, I, can't remember the, I can't remember the name of the label. I'm really, really sorry. But a few records came out there. And then uh, when the shop closed, Fran, who I grew up with, um, with the sound systems and buying music and stuff, used to, you know, um, go to record stores and clean out people, go like up north or go to other record stores in, in, in England to, to buy records and stuff. Um, he was at Crossroads as well, because I'm at the shop. All my, all my belongings were in the, in the flat. I had to move everything out of the flat, move everything back to my mum's. Fran, Fran was in the, uh, the car game, I believe. And something happened where he had to leave the card game, car game. He was actually making some records. He was getting inspired by people like Kerry Chandler, Mood to Swing, people like that, because they, they, they were gods to us. And basically, it came to a cut a long story short. We didn't have no money, no outlet. Fran had a little studio master desk in a box in his box room in his mum's house, an Atari ST and a Juno 106. I had my MPC um, 60 and uh, I remember him coming down to um, the store in a red Cavalier 
putting all my belongings into his car and driving back to Wembley, like it's like about, I don't know, 40 minutes away. And I was really, really down. I was thinking, oh my God, this is so sad. It wasn't our fault why the record closed. And we let down so many people. Like he's like a, you know. Anyway, to cut long story short, Fran said, well, let's make some tunes together. Yeah, I goes, yeah, well, you know, because we, you know, we know each other. He goes, okay, cool, 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 cool. So, but Fran was more of the business side of end than I was. I remember him taking me up to um, up this hill near his house and we discussed what we we're going to do. And he goes, are we going to do this? And I went, yes. He goes, right, okay, we're going to go down this road. And I remember saying it on Andy's um, podcast, we shook our hands 50-50. That was the contract and that was it. Everything down the line was 50-50. Whatever we did, no sign, nothing. It was that kind of friendship that we had, you know, we have. And uh, from then on, we just went gun ho We went to his house and we mixed all the early records on a 16-track studio master desk with the Atari ST with some sort of kind of arrangement. Then we wrote down on paper when to do all the punches. So we did it in one take. So all those records that came out on cutting records, on Todd's label, TNT, uh, the Jay Washington record, the track work EP, which had the bump on it. That was all done live, one take in a box room in Fran's house. There you go. So I did like, we did like about nine or 10 tracks. Um, and then I went to New York around, this is like 95, 96 or something like that. And because uh, I knew Benji really well, because Benji and Danny were like legendary DJs in our field because they used to do these things called the Master Mix shows on Choice FM. Big up, Benji. Big up, Danny. Love you lots. You know, they were doing these mixes that were just ridiculous. So they're like, they're like collector's items now. Are we talking um, about Danny Morales? Danny, Danny Buddha Morales and Baby sure Candela. Let's make sure they know. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, ben, Danny, Benji Danny Candelario. Benji Candelaro, the Don Dada, used to work at Mercury. I believe he was instrumental in with Crystal Waters, getting yeah, that across the line. Yeah. Um, he was a major, he still is a major player in the game. Very humble, quiet like myself, you know, doesn't want to mess around anybody. But, you know, he, he is like my, the brother I never had, apart from Fran, because everything that I have, he has. You know, he's got, he's every, I went to a studio last week and he's got exactly the same setup as me exactly the same setup i mean ridiculous the yuri the crossover the mpc the 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 mac even down to the mac i've got an old tower of mac he's got the same thing as me I mean, it's madness you know and it, anyway moving swiftly i got this we got this out of like eight or nine records um, I spoke to Benji. Let me show everybody what Fran looks like. This is his partner. Yeah, that's Fran. That's Mr. Sidoli there. Fran Sidoli, MS Productions. Man, yes. The handshake that changed history. Wow. And the handshake that changed history. It's like, true. Yeah, it's I mean, it was that kind of thing. It. Because back it. in the day, it was really, and he's Italian, you know, and I'm. You know, it's that kind of look. I know. don't break up my balls. You know, oh, that's my word. You know, it's like, uh, that's it. And we basically done these records. And, we, and I went to New York. And I remember Benji taking me to cutting records. 
and um, Aldo signed a few records. Then we did a record for Todd uh, called a TNT uh, TNT record. I can't shoot the juice EP. We sold that, uh, and then they were coming. They were coming out. These records are coming out from the states back. into England as imports. Back into the who, who are these MS? Who are these guys? Who are these? Because they thought we were Americans back in the day, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they were, and we were really getting over. We were doing really, really well. And it came to a point where, you know, we were doing really, really well. And then we did um, Upstairs and Upstairs at Franz. Uh, I came up with this like reggae bass line, uh, this huge reggae kind of real subby kind of bass line. And we found this sound on a JD800. This sound that goes, oh, that's a quite a nice, uh, good sound for, for, for today's market, you know. Came up with some drums. And then I remember Fran playing these chords. I goes, yeah, those chords are great. Those chords are great. And then I whacked on this acapella, this hip-hop acapella, trying to find a sample because you couldn't have a vocal booth, no vote, no, no, you couldn't have access to any vocals at all. So if I'm going through these records and found this hip hop tune and the hip hop, the rap stops and this vocal comes in, justify, justify my love. Oh my God, let's just use that. So we spanned the whole vocals across the keyboard and, and then we just basically was firing the keyboard, firing the vocals in by the keyboard one by one. Justify my love. Da, da, da. And then um, it got the attention. I can't remember how it happened, but we sold it to this Swiss, Swiss guy, Pino Arduini. Oh, I remember Pino. DJ yeah, Pino. He used to do um, a lot of really big clubs back in the day. I don't know what he's doing now. But then subsequently got signed to Strictly Rhythm. That is Pizarro. Yep. She loved the record. And it was, we called it the girl. We didn't know what to call it. Because we, we, the lawyer, well, I remember this contract from Strictly was like this, Mark Finkelstein. <laughs> it was like this to the point where we couldn't even, we, we couldn't even read it. And it's, and it's, so oh. sad we, it's so sad we didn't read it because they've got the rights. They've got the whole, you know, they've, anyway. anyway. But Ricky, you have to explain why. The UK contracts were a one page. Yeah. Americans <laughs> shut the door on absolutely everything. To the point, you know, I don't know if maybe, it, I don't know. We were so green then. We, when we were doing the contract, we were signing the contract. We didn't have a name for the group. And um, Henry Ellis, who's our law at the time, and still is, uh, we said, we haven't got a name for a group. And he said, just call it the girl next door. Let's call it the girl next door, Justify. Okay, let's call it the girl next door. Little did we know that when you type in the girl next door on the internet, it's all about porn, you know. So we that was a mistake. But we called it the girl next door and called it Justify. Blew up. And then when, and subsequently, when we did Sell So Nugget quite a way further on, we didn't own the name. Because Strictly owned the name in that huge contract. We couldn't use the name. So I had to break bread with Mark Finkelstein, Park Lane Hotel or the Hilton Hotel in, in Piccadilly Square, trying to break, like, you know, Mark, come on, give us a break here. Because you had a lot of good records with him. And he goes, okay, but you can have it. So we, that's how we got to use Sal's, the girl next door for, um, for Sal Soul Nugget. 
you know. Well, why would you name it the same as that record? Why did you because we because of the success of Justify? It was such a big record. We didn't want to when we made a we we made a point of not using MS as an artist's name because of that, because of the situations. If you sign, if you put, I don't know if it's like now, but if you sign, if you say record uh, MS as an artist and you call it the documentary, that record label owns that name. You can't use that name. So we will always go MS presents da 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 or MS featuring da 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 da. So the record label never owned MS. So we could go. So just to just to keep, just to make sure that we could at least you have our, our own name, right? You know, and that's why we always used to go as different pseudonyms. Used to go as state of mind. Used to go as um, um. Oh my god, the balls of London, or you know, or um, or all these different pseudonyms, urban spirits. You know, so they own that name. But nine times out of ten, there would never be another record made using that name. So we always had MS as our own, you know. So we always made choices to make sure that people at the small print who produced the record, you but know. But the Maverick single, well, the, I'm going to say the Maverick single, the, 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 that girl, the one for Strictly that Pino signed, and then he's. That, well, we found out it was Barbara Tucker. Barbara Tucker did that vocal when she was really, really way, way, way back. You know, we didn't know. I didn't know it was Barbara Tucker. At the the time. That was was that the record? That part on Madonna's record? That 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 vocal part or no? No, it was a rap. Is is a um, I can't remember the name. It, it is a guy making a rap, but Justify. Duh, 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 duh. Then she comes in Justify. We I don't know the name of the record, but we sampled that. And it just culminated in Gladys believing in us. Signing um, it, and she signed the record. And because of the success of that record, and because we didn't own the vocal, uh, the girl next door, we didn't own the vocal. And because we had the record, and we're getting really minuscule residues out, but we had a uh, it, it blew up out of the kindness of her heart. And I've got to say, I mean, Gladys to this day still has the ear of all time, that ear of hers. All sign all those records on Strictly and then on Nervous. She absolutely stunned. Nobody me. for an era of time has, has, has there's no one. I'm no sorry. I'll say oh, no, no, there's two there's two people in my opinion that have got I've the ear. <laughs> yeah. There's two people that really resonate with me that I know has got an ear. That's Gladys Pizarro and Mr. Simon Dunmore. Mr. Simon Dunmore has the ear of all time. He knows her he sniffs the record, he knows her hit. From he the comes kids. in at the right time to grab it. Yeah, yeah. Simon and Gladys. But the difference between Simon between the difference between Simon and Gladys, big difference was Gladys because you know this is a record producer. Gladys is in the in the pit with you. Yeah, she's in the trenches in the early time, like when like when we're like you know putting like building. Well, a she house. was she was early A and R. She she you'd give her an idea and she went with you. A kick, a bass, and a clap, and a little vote. Yes, let's go. That's what it was like back in the day, as you know, an A&R person, right. they'd hear the record and they'd go, yes, I can, I can hear, yeah, go on, off you go, here's some money, go on. Now, you've got to have a video, you've got to have a, so 10,000 people following Let's not go you. into what it is today. Anyway, no, no, stop, stop, let's right. stop that, that conversation. Right, so basically, you know, Gladys had the greatest ears Good in the vision. That She time. envisioned and that golden ear. 
Yeah. She just knew it. She knew she just had that sixth sense say, yeah. I love this. I want to see this. And, and yeah. she, she believed, she believed in just, she loved Justify because what was happening because of me and Franz immerse, immersive head into American music and American style music, we were making records that actually mistakenly did sound American with a little British twist. And Gladys liked that. Um, Justify record and all the records that we heard did on cutting because it had that little British edge to it, that energy, but had still had the sleaziness of the American kind of sound, you know. So um, the kindness of her heart, she said, "Rick, Fran, come over to New York and let's make a record with Barbara Tucker." So she flew us from England to New York, went to the studio, uh, Strictly Room Studios, and when the engineer was Anthony something, I can't remember now, and we wrote a record for Strictly with Barbara Tucker on vocals, and as a homage, because Fran also was into Boyd Jarvis, we called it Visual, and it was called um, Bring Me Love. We had uh, Danny Tom Danny Danny Thomas, who did a lot of backing vocals for us. He actually did Deeper. He came over and flew to New York and did the BVs with Barbara. And then we actually got our engineer to come over to engineer the track. And so we wrote that song with, um, with Barbara in Street Rhythm Studios. Another lovely story is um, when we came, it was really cold in New York. And that was the time when me and Fran weren't really interested in making the record. We were interested in getting the N64 because it just come out and it wasn't out in the UK. So we were trying to run to all these stores to get the N64 with Super Mario to bring back to London, being the first <laughs> people to have it. That's all we were interested in. What about making, oh, we're going to go to New York, I'm going to find this, N64, you know, anyway. So we go into the studio now in the morning and Gladys is going, listen, Rick, Rick Fran, I need your opinion on this, these, these couple of records. We just finished them a couple of days ago, Mood to Swing made these Evan records, John. right? And Springsteen and John Chiffone. We, uh, me and Fran, if it wasn't for Mood to Swing, we wouldn't have created our sound because we loved what John Chafoni was doing, the kind of drum patterns he was doing. And David, obviously, David's programming back in the day was fantastic. So we kind of fused those together to create our own kind of drum sound. So anyway, we come to studio. Gladys gives us these two dats and tells us to listen to them. Just finished. We're going, ah, okay. One of them was Lonnie Clark searching, and the other one was Alternate Free. Mm. So she's going, which one of these records do you think is going to be a hit? Immediately, we said Alternate Free, but we loved Lonnie Clark searching. That was the one for us because that was just oh. banging house track. Yeah, banging house track. And I remember she given it to Louis Vega, and Louis was playing at the shelter, and I went to the shelter, and he's beating up two copies of the same track of, of Lonnie Clark searching off, off acetate. I mean, that record to me was just bad, but we all, we, we knew Ultra Today was free because of the message of the record. And we knew from the past records that Muta Swing did, this record was the culmination of all their, their, their work to bring this beautiful piece of commercial, but underground uh, music, you know, and it was just loved. Everything was perfect. 
Everything was the guitars, the drum is just right. It was, just that that it was the right moment, the right time, everything aligned. It was a combination of all their skills. Do you understand what I mean? Earning their craft, and it, everyone, every producer has that that culmination where oh, they've they've put all their skills into in this into this one rig. I'm sure you've got one. Me and Fan have got a couple. David's got a couple. You know, um, all of the masters were all, all, all our peers. You the know, one record I hear from all of you is that spread love record every time. No yeah, matter. exactly. Spread it's love. Like, it's like but all those other ones. Those that, that all those ones we're using. All those those live musicians. Yes. Yeah. The the East Side Movement. Oh my god. That all those records are fantastic. With that guy, the guy's second name beginning with P, Pescada, Pescada. Astro, he passed away, Michael Panastro. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember me, I remember that record I used to beat up on cult records. Uh, Mila. Mass Production? Oh, Mila. Mass yeah, Mila. Yep. Yeah, Cry Again or something. I'm going to check But yeah, great, great, great tune. But those, those, yeah. Great times. And then basically, you know, we, uh, we we're quite lucky to have heard free for the first time before anyone else, you know, and then, um, you know, we did the record and then, um, one of our dreams was to have an engineer that we used to love to mix, uh, our record. Who was that? Phil Pagano. Ah, Phil yes. Pagano. Wow, that's a he name. Was, because he was the Don. He used to have all these tricks up his sleeve and with the delays and reverbs and stuff like that. And I remember him coming to this. He's a rock dude. I mean, you, you see yeah, the hairline, yeah, long hair. Not too long ago. Yeah. Okay, yeah, really no. small guy. And, and we always wanted, we, we always wanted to have her powers master record. And, and we wanted um, an engineer of, 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 of that ilk to because he used to do a lot of mood to swing things. I think I think he did a lot of master stuff as well. Actually, as, well as, as well as Dave Darlington as well. Is he, he yeah. yeah. So when we're in the studio, we finished a track and we wanted to do this really bugged out dub, and um, Dad is hooked it up, and uh, he comes into the studio guys and we said to Phil, just do what you want. He goes, really. Because he was always, I think a lot of engineers were kind of like uh, restricted in, in trying to do what they want to do. You know, like, no, don't do the, too much of that. We left him to do his own thing, came back, and he gave us this dub that was just absolute fire, you know, like using all the, the tricks of the trade and that. And that was quite a, a beautiful moment for us, having an engineer of, of, our, of who we inspired by to actually make our record, her powers mastering it, and actually doing a track in New York, producing a track with with um, Barbara Tucker. You know that was that was a beautiful moment. It's fantastic, and many thanks to Gladys for for getting that across the line. And that's the thing I tell people. I mean, I wish we had those type of positions again, where you have those people sitting at those desks waiting for our music to come in and give everyone a chance. And it's that just hey, doesn't exist. It's all about trust, Lenny. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's all about trust. If someone, if you give someone a record, an idea, and that person back in the day, that person knew that idea where it was going to go to, they you, let you have the reins and do what you want, you know. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the industry right now that haven't been able to express themselves in that way, even record companies, because they have to follow the trend and stuff like that. And, and Gladys wasn't that kind of girl. She, you know, 
you'd have one beauty. That's why she created all these diffusions, the Strictly Rhythm Blue, all the beautiful vocals, the red, you know. And there's some tracks, some tracks I couldn't understand, but when you hear them in the club, you say, oh, I know why she signed this record, you know. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, those labels back in the day, I mean, even a fantastic record label, which which never saw the light of day over here, maybe for legal reasons, was um, Emotive Records. We used to, Catch a Groove was Emotive Records. We used to get, whatever record came out in Emotive, like James Howard, Valerie Johnson, all those kind of records, all the Joe Vaughn stuff. We'd be selling those blind because that those kind of records were were a staple diet of the of the American club scene in the in the nineties, you know. So um, I can't, you know. You can't say enough about them. I can't David say Chang. nothing about them. I have still got yeah, the records to this Chang. day. David Chang, David Chang, and Josh, isn't it, Josh? Josh Dorenzis. That's yeah. right before. That's right before Ted Patterson and Hector Romero. That's right. right. And Hector came on board, yeah, yeah. So I remember another two stories is really bugged out, which I went now because I'm remembering everything coming back to me now. I remember when I went to New York and uh, I had to go to the Strictly office to get some promos, if I remember, or some records. And I remember going to this little apartment. I can't, I think it's a small apartment, going up these flights of stairs, walk in. And there's this Puerto Rican guy there. It was Frankie Feliciano giving me the promos because he used to work at Strictly but way back in the day. Oh, yeah. That was and cool. he gave me those, I mean, giving me those promos back in the day. That was, a, that's a, oh, God. Frank, and look at Frankie now. Fair pay to him. He, I love him. Love his productions. Love his, 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 his they're mind. Smooth, they're deep. It's really beautiful. Reconstruction records. Reconstruction, yeah. all those cats, yeah. Mm -hmm. Frankie Feliciano, I remember um, meeting uh, Blue Jean, all those kind of cats, all those real underground cats, oh, you Bruce know. Jean, yeah, he used, yeah. To work, used to work, and that I think around that time he would have been working with Mike out of Mike Usick's office. Yeah, and, and as I said to you earlier on, you know, I couldn't believe I met the guy. Uh, Benji took me to a, a shop called Rock and Soul in New York, and I'm going through the records, and, and this little guy would. Big blue eyes goes, oh, can I help you? It's Walter Gibbons. Walter Gibbons is working at Rock and Soul. I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, if we, uh, you know. How is this possible, right? How is this possible? How is this guy here who instrumentally making all those fabulous records back in the day, mixing tapes, cassettes, you know, and he, uh, he's there in front of me, small guy, quite frail at the time, obviously, because he passed away. Uh, later not on, too um, long, not too long after, yeah, yeah he was pretty, yeah. He wasn't doing too serving well. me records. Walter Gibbons serving me records at Rock and Soul took me to the, the cutout section where you had all the bootleg track, all the bootleg records, all the ones that are hard to find, you know, like uh, Danny's mix, Danny's edit of um, The Shy Lights, My First Mistake, and Love is a Message. I said to you earlier that record, uh, Let This is Got to Be Real, or no, not Got to Be Real. Are You For Real? Are You For Real? And also the main, the big one that everybody always looking for, Bra by Simony. That, that, that yeah, Bra, yeah, all those records. The green, it's green, right? Just yep. double bands on the other side, yeah. And all the acapellas anonymous. Yeah, all the acapella anonymouses, all that, yeah. Great, Guys, great. there was a time when there was a guy named George the Bootlegger. 
that used to make all those bootlegs. Oh, okay. He's no longer with us either. And he would come and bring all those, those, what he's talking about, those cutouts were bootlegs of records that maybe you heard basically the records were out of print right lenny and then basically print print them and 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 have them i remember buying um oh my god there's an orange label which had this track called electronic drums do you remember that record i remember trying to find this records every time tony at Zanzibar would be introducing a new record or or his famous mix of that beat with Stevie Wonder, all I do. Um, I had to find this record, and I and I eventually did 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 find it. And I remember, um, I remember, um, I got a tape. Sorry, all these memories keep coming back That's to you. Right, now. We, 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 we want you to dig in that golden uh, A tape with a, a track called "Attracted to You" on it with Anne Robinson. I'm attracted to you. Oh my god! Do, do, do. I'm, I used to play that, and then I found out that was an acetate. And on the B side was David Cold in a live overdubs of House Music Anthem. That's right. I remember having that. Uh, I think you still get it. I think you can get it now. But that record was rare as hen's teeth. I used oh, to yes. play that all the time, the, and, and Robinson, and Tony uh, turned me on to that. I think that was the recording of David playing it at with Bruce Forrest. The Bruce Forrest, yeah, I think it was. Better Days, if I remember yeah. that was uh, That's the club I, oh, I, I didn't get a chance to get to. I'd love to have gone there, love to have gone there. I went to the Zanzibar, and that was a fantastic experience. Um, I remember hearing Frankie at the world. That was a beautiful look, everybody. Yeah, there you go. I went. Me and Fran went there. Not Fran. Me and Abby went there. Abby and Abigail. That was a great night. Great, great night. Great night. I mean, the tempo, Lenny, back in the day. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, the tempo back then. It was like one eighteen, one twenty. Tony was. And then I remember Tony telling me about the magic number. After after um after the whole Zanzibar era and minute he said the magic numbers one twenty three if you play a record any record regardless of the tempo at one twenty three that's the magic number because if it's a record's too fast at one twenty seven you put down twenty three gives you that sleaze and if a record's too slow at one eighty one ninety you put one twenty three it's just got the energy but just the right energy right there. And- only used to mix always at 123 back in the day boss but just a nice and that's why it's this this lovely hump you know it was uh memories god that's god. what i love see this is what i love you know another then- one sorry i'll just remember another one with yeah. Humphreys. Yeah. oh my out. god sorry jesus these memories come to my head high on hope with yeah, High and Hope was around 88, 89. Yep. I remember, um, this was so vivid. I remember uh, Frankie Fonset, the Don, yep. who actually was one of my inspirations. Stan, stand up guy. I played with him a couple of weeks at Garage City. Still got it, still got the skills. Still he looks there. great. Are you kidding me? He still looks fabulous. better than me. It's going on there. He looks fantastic. So he's he's the don of all dons, the don of all dons. Very humble man. Always dressed to the best. 
Always the best, yeah. Love him. Love him to pieces. True inspiration of everybody in the UK house scene. One of the top, top. 100%. And um, he was playing resident. He's resident high in hope. And I used to go there all the time with with him as his, you know, listen, you know, to um, to hang out with him and play. But me and him were really, really tight because going back in the 80s, the late 80s, early 90s, my friend Gary used to tape the WLS shows on Saturdays with Timmy Ridgesford, Bobby Condors, John Robinson. So every month I'd get these tapes, right? A whole batch of tapes every week. I've got like a whole crate load of tapes. And me and, Fra me and Frank used to listen to these tapes and know all the records that were coming out trying to find them. Like, do you remember Burrell? I really like. Sure I do. That tune, Timmy used to beat this up in a fashion. And he used to have these different edits of 212 North Street, or he played Touch Without You before it came out, and all. And we were going crazy, you know. Where like, you where, where, whose version is this? Whose version is that? He played, I remember we were losing our minds over these two Blaze records. One was called, um, one was called I'll Do Anything for Your Loving. I'll do anything for your loving. And another one which escapes me, um, which was absolutely oh, one of the best Blaze tracks ever made, in my opinion. It never came out. Then I see it on Track Source a few years ago on this uh, Street Something, Street Scene Something album. Um, but Timmy used to play these records. And me and, me and Frankie, when I was a computer engineer, used to sit in our car, my car, and just listen to the tapes and try and find out what records this and what records that. Then when we used to find those records, Frank used to play them at High and Hope before anyone knew what the records were because we already had them jump up and we already knew those records were, were fabulous. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Frankie left and passed the torch to me to play the resident High and Hope with Norman. And Norman knowing I was the 12-inch guy because at Bluebird Records in Church Street in the late, early 80s where I met Norman, when Norman had a sound system called Norman J Associates, I met him in the store with Ab and Abby was selling us records. The way I met Norman was he knew I had all the 12-inches and he had all the album cuts. And I remember we were talking about records and he wanted this record by the 80s ladies turned on to you. Oh, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of copies. Yeah. And how we really bonded was he goes to me, you give me 80s ladies and I'll give you this. And basically we had this connection and it kind of, we lost our way a bit. And then we ended up, you know, him re recognizing me at the, the Red Records and at, at um, Bluebird. And I became resident at, um, at High and Hope. And some of the moments there, I will cherish forever and ever high and hope was a club that was inspired by the paradise garage where we would encompass all different styles of music we were playing new jack swing we were playing hip-hop we were playing soul funk house jazz all encompassing a system by joey j he had this incredible system where anything that's uh, anything you put on that system was like putting petrol, like putting a match to petrol, just leaping out the speakers. But because of the contacts that we had, 
everybody was coming through the club because people were recognizing what kind of what we're trying to introduce. And I got, I'm not going to lie, it was on a Thursday night, and for like about three or four years, there was like about 10, 15 people a night, but they would be the same people right. coming every night because they wanted to hear the music, you know. Jeremy used to come every night and be and listen to me and Norman and, and Frankie. Anyway, and to cut a long story short, we knew Tony Humphreys before Tony Humphreys, if that makes sense. We invited him to come over to play at High and Hope. This guy played this record, Joe Vaughn, Turn and Run Away. Oh, oh my God. This record at 1.20, sampling Blaze, right? Remember that, sample Blaze, if you should need a friend. This record caused absolute mayhem at High and Hope. I know it did. Absolute mayhem. And that lit the torch because after that week, everybody was coming to that club. Everybody. We had Marshall Jefferson playing, Fast Eddie playing. We had Shaka Khan performing there for free on Vogue, coming to the to club in their white suits singing Hold On. And the reason why it was so popular because we weren't announcing who was going to be playing. So we had everybody come. Who have they, who have they got this week? Who have they got next? We had on. Don't, know, don't worry, just come. You're saving. Morales was playing there. Tony came. We had Ashley Beadle, Shock Sound System playing there. But we were hammering all the records. But we were trying to in- encapsulate Tony Humphrey Zanzibar with the Paradise Garage. So I'd be doing mixes where you'd hear a diva in and out of my life tracking with um, with uh, Casey Flight. Let's get jazzy. Let's get jazz, yeah. yeah. So we would uh, we'd get into the tracking yeah. time, and then Fran would be, um, um, normally we'd be playing all the, the big, uh, rare groove, all the eclectic stuff that Norman is the master of programming. And so it's a really beautiful mesh of, um, of, of different styles of music, you know. But we had everyone going through those doors. I mean, Morales, everybody played there. It was ridiculous. Patrick Lilly was the guy that was in, instrumental in um, actually. Who later, on, who later went on to do Queer Nation? Queer Nation. I played at Queer Nation on the Sunday. That was a great club. Yes. In fact, that club, the Gardening Club, was where. Um, yes, that's another another one. At Catch a Groove, um, I met this guy. And we were of the same mentality. We were still stoners, but we used to love all this left field disco music. We were proper stoners, and we had an in, we had a we had a connection. Uh, with a friend of ours, a guy called Marbo in Japan. He was I don't know where he is now, but he was this guy in Japan from Japan. He used to come in and buy all these left field disco, Walter Gibbonsy kind of stuff, and he knew Harvey. So he introduced, I think he introduced me to Harvey. Me and DJ Harvey met and he used to come into the store every week, buying his tunes. We used to fucking, excuse me, we used to smoke weed together, getting high, getting completely, you know, losing our minds, you know, and heart and, and, um, with, with, um, with Catch a Groove and, and Harvey used to come in, we used to smoke all this stuff. And then he said, I want to do a night called moist right 
So he did this club on a Friday night called Moist. And it was myself DJing there quite a lot. Harvey was, and Harvey was old school. He wanted to do it the old school American way where he'd play all night. Because back in the day, you wouldn't be having that kind of stuff in England. You'd be shot. You know, you'd have to have at least three or four, two or three DJs. But he would play all night. And I was quite honoured to, to play with him on a few nights. And anyway, that club, because of the connections with Japan and stuff like that, and because we kind of inter in intertwine with the New York culture, he was able to get Larry Levan to play at Moist when he was resident at um, Ministry of Sound. So it was a very, very close-knit kind of kept secret. And that's the last time, I believe, Larry played in the UK before right. he passed away. That's and right. um, I remember the night, it, it was like, oh, you didn't, you couldn't see anybody. It was just fog, just smoke screen. And you just see Larry. I think Larry was playing out of his skin. He was playing, he played absolutely everything. He played New Birth. He played Soft House companies, playing Tribal House, let's get on everything. Just a huge swashbuckler mix. But it felt like he was going, this is how. You do it. You understand? Like this is what this is what I'm about. And he played to this day one of the best sets I've ever heard. But in a in the way that it was just records. No, you know, it was just throwing down one after the other. Boss, 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 boss. But he had this crowd into an absolute frenzy. I mean, it was just madness. And Harvey was responsible for actually um in Larry to come down and, and, and spin because, you know, they had that, that same kind of um, that mentality. And now look at Harvey. He's absolutely huge playing stadiums and lives in... No, crazy, crazy. Harvey now. It's like, wow. Yeah, I, met, I saw him a few years, about five years ago and I hadn't seen him for like 30 years. It's like, oh my God, oh, you know. And as you know, he's a, one of those DJs that plays absolutely everything right across the board. Yeah, in I know. Way, and it's fantastic. I wish that could happen in in in, in, um, in clubland in general, you know. But that's another conversation. <laughs> the sadness. I'm, I'm feeling like the music and the strings are coming on with sadness again. It's like I'm trying to keep it. Let let's let, let let me just say this to everybody. You know, I was so proud of Ricky when I heard the bidding war began. Oh God! For this yeah. record, I'm gonna you that know. One. This record, and because before I let him go, he's got to tell the story. This was at the time probably the highest. I'm going to click on it again. Paid record as an advance at the time. Mm. It was nothing like it before, and we were all having huge hit records. And this record comes yeah. out. It's like we're hearing a six-figure advance on the table. We're like, what? <laughs> okay, I'll let. First, I want to know about the South Soul sample. Well, basically, the clearance money did you have? Oh, I, mean, I mean, again, as I said on on Andy's podcast, forget uh, about Andy's. We love I, Andy. Love Andy yeah, to tell. Love Andy to True be. House stories. Want to hear Andy? What went down with that record? Yeah, Andy Ward, my God, yes. Yeah. So I, t I, I'm, I'm sure there's a clip out there in the internet of me explaining the whole scenario with with Salso Nugget. Um, basically, 
you know, just a very short story. It was done out of frustration. We were managed by 19 at the time. Simon Fuller was our manager. Well, Danny D was our manager at the time. And uh, Simon Fuller, uh, who manages the Spice Girls and stuff, we were very we were in that camp, making records for that those kind of people, S Club 7, Kathy Dennis and stuff like that. It just got to the point where me and Fran were really, really frustrated in making those kind of records. And uh, we decided to opt out. Anyway, we decided to take a break. And I remember playing this record in the studio, The Sound of One, with Simonelli. And um, we, I heard this loop. And I thought, oh, double explosion, yeah, man. My God, it's a great record. You know, let's just get it out of our system and, and, and uh, put it in the, in the MP, MPC 3000. We had two samples, if you want to. No, no, we just had the groove. Just had the groove. And uh, basically, that record... Sound of One inspired us, liked the vocal, but we loved the groove. Yeah. So to cut a long story short, we created the groove. We went away on holiday. Fran messed around with it. I messed around with it. And then we came back with the money shot, which was the vocal hook, because we thought, oh, we could use this hook, and it sort of sound like the nightcrawlers pushed the feeling on, you know, da 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 you know, and I that sounds like a night quarters. Oh, it's got a commercial edge to it because we had a commercial head on from working with Simon Fuller and Danny D trying to make the record crossover. Yeah, so yeah. we had that money shot. So we need, we need one more thing to make it work. And that one thing was the key change. So it's like a story. The whole record was a story because it wasn't, rec because the record was just, three loops we had to make it interesting so we had to make sure every eight bars something was changing all the time so one would have the stab in there one would wouldn't one would be the vocal one would be the key change back to the vocal da, 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 da. anyway to cut long story short ministry had the license to sell soul nugget that to uh sell soul records because every three years at that time salsa was so hot that they were farming out the acapellas and all their, their catalogue to the record labels for three years for them to exploit. It came around to ministry. And actually, up there, there's a poster saying, want to be the next spiller? Here's how. What have the following record, hit records got in common? M&S Salsa Nugget, Black Box Ride on Time, Spiller Groove Jet, Lenny Fontana, Chocolate Sensation, <laughs> Rock, Treat Em Right, <laughs> Yosh, it's what's up, fuck that counts. Spiller Groove Jet, right? Right. So they were really all They're all they, exactly. So basically, they um they had the the um they had the license for three years. So they thought, you know what? And we were signed at Ministry by then because we were doing records for them as well. So they thought, let's do this record, and we could easily get it um, put away because it's because um it's in the house. It's yeah. in house. It's in it's house. A, yeah. So we drove down there. <laughs> we drove down there. And um, I'm sure as you saw on and, Andy's and podcast, I, I, I was quite expletive when uh, I got no, a response. I don't I know got, anything. I want I well, want you don't know. All right. Okay. I so right. okay. so no. me and Spanner kind of driving down thinking this record's bad. Oh, my God. We're, we're going to get a badass it. track, right? It's fantastic. And we're driving down thinking, oh, my God, they've got to sign it. How much are we going to get? Oh, it's got to be at least, no, 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 right? Go into this A&R meeting 
and you had this little studio master eight track. We had to wait for like half an hour to get the DAT player. We didn't have a DAT player in, in the, around that time. Found a DAT player. We made sure it was on DAT, not cassette, because we wanted to hear the full quality of this record. Put it into the machine, press play, and me in front of going, oh, my God, this record is just... It's Bang just, it! Just, oh, sh Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. And we're going, you know, if you want to... Da, 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 da. And we go, oh, my God, yes. Yes, we've finally done it. We've finally done it. The guy turns around and goes, Rick, friend, I, I don't understand this record. I don't know what, what, what I don't understand. I go, and we're going, what? Because I, I don't understand it. I can't, I can't hear it. I'll give you five grand for it. And me and Fran, I'm like this. I'm, I didn't say something. Me and Fran are like this. And I'm holding his hand. And I'm gripping it so tightly so that my, my hand doesn't come across and whack him in his, in his forehead. You know, I goes, five grand? He went, yeah, goes, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. No problem. No problem. He walked out of the office going, that's fucking key. What's wrong with him? You know, and we're driving back going, this guy, how can he, five grand? What's wrong with him? You know, then we started saying all these bad, bad, bad things about him. Sorry. Anyway, we're sitting there thinking, it's a hit. We know it's a hit. What are we going to do? So we said, you know what? Let's press it ourselves. So we went to a pressing plant, got the, 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 the acetate. We pressed 50 copies. And because of me being in the game, I knew all the high-end DJs. And we sent it to them personally with a handwritten note to each one. Hope you like Ricky and Fran. Da, 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 da. And that just made it just go from this to this. Every man and his dog's playing this record to the point where it was so popular that it actually got bootlegged. I yes. believe there was like 10,000 copies. If yep. you've got M&S 001 on your white label, that's one of 50 copies. All the others didn't have that. So no, just a if, you find, if you find the record M&S 001 and it's got uh, Ricky and Fran on it, I believe, uh, in the side, you know, like an, on the record, there's some like a, like a scrap, like a, um, what do you call it? A, um, what the engineer would put as the record. Yeah, like he would put the smiley face on his, wouldn't he? Yeah. Right. Basically that, that would be, um, MNS 001. So if you've got that, you've got a, you've got a, a good one or 50. Anyway, you pressed it ourselves, gave it to the DJs that we love. It blew up, got to the point now where, you know, to cut a long story short, we knew there was, I mean, we're getting people coming from all over the world asking to sign the record. And we kept on saying no, 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 because we believed in the record so much that we wanted it to have a really, really good home. Then the big wigs started coming in. We had like, um, oh, all of them, all of them came. Sony, Ver Sony came in quite hard, actually. They really wanted that track. And then basically we found out from one way, one way or another that Pete Tong was going to play the record. And he created the record around the competition. He says, if you can tell me what the vocalist is actually singing, you've won a trip, you've won a ticket to, to whatever it was. So he was actually testing to see if the record was going to, if the record was popular or not. So he plays the record, the phone lines have gone, oh, and so-and-so thinks it's so-and-so thinks it's that, so-and-so. Me and Fran are in our studio like this, a bottle of Jack Daniels, 
with the trick going, oh my God, is he going to be, is he, is he going to sign it or not? So the, everyone's on the phone line. Oh, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that. Pete Tong's talking away. Then the phone rings and it's Phil Favisham. Ah, <laughs> Phil. Hey. Right? You signed your record, I believe. Is that That's correct? right. I was going to say Phil Favisham. Oh, yeah. Phil Favisham. We were another guy. And um, we're on, on loudspeaker and, in the, and Phil goes, Rick, I love the record. It's a fantastic record. There's 50 grand records and there's these records. This is one of those records. Let me know. And he put the phone down. He was right to say it that way. And I just, me and friend just lost our minds. The Jack Daniels bottle was finished. I want to know who the $5,000 guy was. What a and No, I can't do that. I'd get lynched. I can't do oh, that. Is he still around? Well, you just work, you work it out. Work it out. It's Ministry of Sound around, this was, must have been 98, 99, around that era. So, yeah. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, Ministry yeah. or defected? Ministry. Ministry. And then what happened, it got signed to FFRR for a ridiculous amount, but Sony kept on biting our heels. So they signed it for Europe, I believe, and... FFRR was part of a, a Warner Brothers at the time, and that's a sign for the rest of the world. And then, full circle. Wait a minute. My full wait, circle. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Wait, wait. Wait, 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 wait. I think FFRR was with Seagram's. Seagram's bought Yeah, them. but Warner Brothers owned the own. I think they had. I think FFRR was part of Warner Brothers. Otherwise, we wouldn't have got the, the deal with Atlantic Records. Yeah, it came but Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. right. Sorry. So basically, the record signed to FFRR. Sony took it for Europe outside of, outside the, what was it, North America or something. And then, and, and then we got it signed to Atlantic via Big Beat Records. That's Craig right. Calman. Yep. Craig Calman signed my first record on that's Big right. Beat. You big right? You that's big right. Yes. That's right. Yes. This was 1991. So all full circle, you know, and he remembered me and he said, no, just give it to me. And he, and he put it on Atlantic and I've got it there. Double pack Atlantic. The girl. Hold next on, let me go to it. Let's go to it. Wait, wait, wait. Let's go. That one Let's right go. There. there we go. That is absolutely fantastic. $5,000 for the prize. FFRR, FFRR didn't want to put it out as it was. They wanted to put a vocal on top of it. So we had to find a top line. You had to find someone to sing the vocal over it. And we found Natasha Bryce because we were watching um, um, a film called The Fifth Element. And we saw this uh, black girl as an air stewardess. And we thought, oh, that's a great, you know, because we wanted more of an image kind of thing. And she happened to sing as well because her cousins are the Scoffries. So she came in and sung the vocal. She had a storyline. So FFR were happy. She had a storyline, Fifth Element. We had a storyline as MS, da, 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 and we created this machine and we called it the girl next door, Sell Soul Nugget. I remember the five records, we got to number six in the pop charts, and the five records before us up the top end, up between one and five, were all bona fide major label records. Yep. And we were the only underground record in that chart, and we got to number six. If it wasn't for those, if those five records didn't come out at the same time, because as you know, back in the day, the records would come out on a Tuesday or something like that and all come in and then there'd be a chart thing happening and whoever had the best distribution got the highest chart position. 
or the the, the most uh, press. We had Boys Town Gang, we had Shabby, It Wasn't Me, we had another couple of records that are really major artists, and we were at number six, so we did quite well. Did really, really well. Really, really well. Okay, everyone, for $5 million, who was the ah! man <laughs> that... I'm not telling you that figure. It's a, it's a very healthy figure. It's very nice. Very, very, very nice. I ask this question, though. Yeah. So people on oh, the sample. Oh, my God. The sample clearance, because I paid a lot of money. I've always Listen, thought, how much? I had, I had to fly to New York to Salso Records, Bethlehem Music, to meet Glenn LaRusso. That's right, Glenn LaRusso. Yep. Glenn LaRusso looked like Barry Gibb. He had his hair like this. He had gleaming white teeth. Gleaming. <laughs> And he's going, hey, Rick, I love the record. It's really, really cool. I'm going to need $75,000. <laughs> I went, what the, f-? you know, and we That's broke right. it down to a reason, a more reasonable figure. Broke me, took me around the back. I, got, I picked up a couple of reels. Yeah, I've got, got the double cross. Um, salsa, I've got... Um, Every man, first choice, double cross, uh, two inch reel. The every man, two inch reel. So you know, I'm very happy. I remember, I remember one really weird story. I remember guy, he showed me this cupboard, and he showed me all the memorabilia from the old Salsa records, and they had the hot pants oh. from um, Salsa, and like, and it did from from wherever it was, and it still looked exactly the same. I mean, all soiled and everything. I mean, ugh, nasty. But, you know, and you had all these roller skates and stuff like that, you know. But, um, yeah, that was everything. a great moment. Yeah, so bro- yeah, broke bread with Glenn LaRusso, came back. So most of that, you know, decent chunk of that went to the sample clearance. But listen to this, though. This is a great story. This is a beautiful story, which maybe we can end on. Or if you want to talk we will about, end on this one. But tell us that case. great story. Basically, um, hang on a second. So basically, the record comes out. When I had the meeting with the guy, we knew it was a hit, right? So we asked the guy, <laughs> if we do sell it somewhere, to another label, can you give us the license? He went, yes, no problem, Rick, friend. You can have it. You can have it. I'm sorry I can't hear the record, but, yeah, if you sell it, you can have the license. No problem at all, right? So he went, okay, that's even that's, that's nice. That's a nice gesture. The record blows up. We're doing contracts. And Our lawyer contract, contacts ministry. No, you're not getting it for nothing. You want X amount of money. I'm thinking this cup, this geezer, and we are, we're over a barrel. We couldn't do nothing because it's already, it's already crossed the line. Let's We've see. done everything, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the original slate. I'm saying the slates are done. So they're in a position, they're going like this yeah, now. Yeah, what do you do? And that was nine, that was 19th of May, 2000. Almost. That guys, think almost, about it. He's already like, now what do we do? We're already into this yeah. thing. It's blown up. There's, there's, we're going to the top of the pops, man. Yeah, that's almost 23 years to the day. That's My God. Right. Yeah. So anyway, he's uh, he's got us over a barrel, so we got to pay up. 
you got to pay up. What happened to the ante? He says, no problem. It's fucking, this guy, he goes, yeah, I'm, well, no. It's, it, well, it was a constructed letter from their lawyers to up to yeah, of course, lawyer. of And we thought, this fucking guy, Jesus, he's such a... Mm. Anyway, the record blows up, right? Gets to number six in the pop charts. And I've got a piece of paper there, a fax from him. 23 years ago, right, from this guy. Hi, Ricky and Fran. I guess I was wrong. You was right. But we're both going to be happy anyway. Kind regards. Da -da 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 -da. That's a true story. $5 million, everyone. What's the guy's name? Send it out. So anyway, he, you know, he won. We won, you know, and, and uh, you know. It's a great record. It stands the test of time. Oh, I mean, it's so great. I still play it. Are you kidding? Still love it. Still love it. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a great, and we actually did a re-release, the 20th anniversary, three years ago. It came out on, um, came out on Tinted Records in Australia and, uh, Mark Knight blessed us with a mix and, uh, Mighty Mouse God Rest His Soul did a mix for us as well. So that kind of mm -hmm. gave it a new resurgence with all the, Spotify and then nah, 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 all that nonsense, you know. So, the digital um, world, the digital world, another conversation. Let me leave you on this, everybody. And we, Gladys was here a little while ago, and, uh, and she said this exactly. And I'm going to say this from my heart I wouldn't trade none of it to what we all experienced. Uh, we were we were in a very very special unique time never Golden. to be done again. Those records that came out, I mean, I know we keep harping on about it, but there was a purple patch between 91 and 98. Those records stood the test glorious of glorious. glorious records, absolutely fabulous records. Beautiful records. Story. Still, and you know what's crazy, everyone? Now I'm hearing the new kids producing records, right? New new names. And, and what do they sound like? Old Strictly Rhythm Records, old nervous records. They sound they sound well, the, yeah. I mean, you see other you see old record labels from back in the day regurgitating their old stuff to introduce to a, the, a younger audience. And it's great that the younger or the younger producers are giving their twist on it, which we would think sacrilege to, to remix. A, a beautiful record like, you know, uh, like beautiful people or something like that. And they put in, anyway, that's another conversation. But, you know, was, in conclusion, you know, my story is, is um, a story which is a very innocent story. It was, wasn't, I was, this wasn't planned what I, what I came to, you know, I just loved music. I just happened to be, at the right place at the right time. I was around some beautiful friends who shared the same taste as me and that helped me on my journey and it actually propelled me into a situation where I could be playing all over the world. I happened to have a uh, my best friend, my brother, who I was making records with, so that made life a lot easier. And the record shops, I was with like very, very close friends of mine, so that made life a lot easier. It didn't become a business. It was just something that we loved, you know? It's passion. And passion. It's passion, you know? Passion and everyone was on the same page, and that's why, you know, we you know, we got on really well, and we we, we created a, a few dents in, in the history of um, of the UK scene, you know? So, um, 
very privileged, very honoured to be part of it. And thank you, Lenny, for making me say my stories in one year to another, then up and down, left and right. I'm getting memories now of other bits and pieces, but I'm trying to remember. But um, No, you can't look, Ricky, yeah. you touch. I want to thank Ricky for turning me on to La Taverneta on Dean Street. We used to all go there to eat Italian. Yeah. Ricky said, oh, we got to go down down the street. We'd all somehow get together and be eating Italian food. Yeah. Little Italy in Soho. Yeah. Block away from the store. I want to thank Abby Shaw and Jeremy. Yeah. Um, all the fondness, all the um, craziness that went on because of a lot of crazy stuff we didn't talk about. It was a lot of crazy Ooh. stuff. But yeah. that's what makes it the music industry. And on exactly. that note, Ricky Morris and stay young forever at heart. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining in, people. I hope you got some kind of sense of what actually happened back in the day. And uh, hopefully, I hope if there's any youngins listening. Oh, one question I had for you, Ricky, before I let you go. Yeah. Did you ever take a break where you stepped back for a while and you didn't do anything with music? Because you, you kind of went quiet for a moment. I was meaning to ask. We went quiet because... We went quiet, actually, because we had a purpose-built studio. Uh, we emulated our studio to the studio that we were working with because we were working at a place called PWL, which, as you know, Pete Waterman, they had Kylie Minogue, Rick Astley working there, and they were working at an SSL desk. We were working, all our mixes were from SSL E-Series. And then, and we had to leave that studio because they were shutting it down, and we built a studio each in our house. No, we built a purpose-built studio. A guy called Mark Russell, big up yourself, Mark Russell, who built yeah. a studio for Defected. Um, great guy, fantastic guy, another record collector. He was working for a company and he built a studio, a replica of PWL. So we had the Genelec 1033s, the big, big. You know, did you did you actually configure it as the bunker downstairs? We configured the dimensions exactly the same as the bunker at PWL. Or was it the borough? Upstairs one. With the sliding doors? Yeah, the sliding doors. Upstairs, because that sound upstairs was ridiculous. I, I mean, used to I work, work downstairs in the bunker. I used to work upstairs. Kerry Chandler, Todd Terry, all those cats used to work together up there. With Champion Records. Remember Champion Records? Oh, yeah. I sure remember Champion. Oh, yeah. So I was doing stuff with him. And then basically me and Fran were working out of that studio. To cut a long story short, that studio closed down. We built a studio ourselves with the same dimensions. but And we were under an, um, a department store called Woolworths. It was like a 90-foot square space. And we built like a studio in the front of this space. Anyway, the landlord thinking that he's got us over a barrel, says, you know what? I'm putting the rates up. <laughs> so he thought, you know what? Excuse my French, fuck this. So we broke the studio down and we built a studio each, exactly the same, in our house. When we did that, we lost that purpose to work. Do you understand what I mean? The because you have the studio in your house, Yep. You get so, you think, oh, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll do it in the afternoon. And you never get round to it. It just got to the point, and we were using the digital technology back in the day where mm -hmm. we would send files to each other because he lived up the road from me. Instead of us meeting and actually being in the studio together to create music, to create um, a mood, 
we'd be sending for, oh, what do you think of this beat? What do you think of those chords? And it just, it just was not inspiring. So it just got to the point where we weren't really making music because we weren't getting a juice. Every time we got a buzz is if we went to a studio to record a vocal or something, and, oh, the great good old days, you know. And we, you know, we were paying like £2,500 a day for an SSL. And then when all that finished, we were going to the same studio, same similar studio for £500 a day. You know, it's like madness, you know, it's ridiculous, it's, you know. So in answer to your question, we got really uninspired. Yeah. And around that time when the 2000s music that was coming out was getting a lot more digital, a lot more um, predictable. And you know, EDM was and also, that's another yeah, kind of EDM issue. was coming yeah. out and it was all about plugins, you know, the hardest yeah. recording really kicked in, you know. So we got really, got a bit um, dismayed by it all. And then with Fran's um, family situation getting worse to worse, you know, he decided to, to stop making music altogether. I carried on because I was DJing and then um, I was still DJing, still living a good life, but wasn't inspired to make records because, you know, I wasn't working with Fran, you know. And it culminated <clears throat> with Frankie Knuckles giving me a call saying he wanted to, me to remix Let's Stay Home because I loved all the MS stuff. Can you, re can you give us a mix? Unfortunately, Fran wasn't able to do that, so I had to do it myself, and that got me going again. So we, our remix, Let's Stay Home, was a fantastic Frankie's record, absolutely beautiful record. Um, turn the ignition back on. Yeah, and it turned it back on, and I started doing stuff with Mr. Mike, and then, you know, and then, and then it just got me back into Good. it. You know? We didn't need you to keep going. We don't want you to stop. That's what we was wondering what happened, you know, because there's a period there went quiet. Now we got the inside scoop, which was great. Yeah. Go, Ricky. Thank you again for sharing such wonderful stories. Thank and next you. week, another great coming on. Georgie Porgy, music. Oh, Georgie Porgy, yes. We're going to Chicago. We're leaving London and we're wow. flying back to Chicago. Georgie Porgy will be next week right here on True House Stories. Wow. Have a good night. Do not leave us, Rick. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. Stay with us on the on the actual on the YouTube. You can see all the other shows. TrueHouseStories.com. Take care, everyone. Stay blessed. Good night. Okay.